0: Ian Morrison, Josh Hayes, Emma Alexander, Niall McCallum, Jake Morgan and Max Potter. I really
1: like Christmas.
0: The Jodcast, December 2017 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Josh and joining me in the studio today are Emma and Niall. Hi guys. Hiya. Hi. Hi. In the show this time, Max Potter interviews Dr. Romain Tartese about the Prospect mission, and Ian Morrison and Claire Bretherton take a look at what's happening in the December night sky. But first,
2: before all that, here's Jake with this month's news. Our first news story this month comes from our own solar system, but began outside it. A passing asteroid named Oumuamua, which loosely translates from Hawaiian as a messenger from afar arriving first, has been confirmed as the first catalogued interstellar asteroid, receiving the new designation of 1I-2017U1, with the I standing for interstellar. This asteroid was first detected on October the 19th by the University of Hawaii's Pan-STARRS one telescope as it scanned the sky to search for near-Earth objects for NASA. The agency is keen to find and track such objects, also known as NEOs, with a particular eye to identifying any that make close approaches, or could potentially be hazardous to us down here on Earth. Dynamical calculations initially suggested that it might be a so-called interstellar interloper, and a combination of both archival and follow-up observations from an array of telescopes, including the VLT in Chile, have confirmed that the object is indeed interstellar in origin. The recovered light curves indicate the object is up to 200 metres long, and spins once every 7.3 hours. Also notable is the asteroid's high aspect ratio. It is up to 10 times longer than it is wide, giving it a pencil or cigar-like shape. Objects of this nature are not observed in our own asteroid belt. Despite making a close approach to our sun, Oumuamua has no trail of ice or dust associated with it, ruling out the possibility of it being a comet. The confirmation paper has since been published in Nature, and efforts are now ongoing to try and identify where this visiting asteroid might have come from. However, such efforts are complicated by the fact that we don't know how long the asteroid has been travelling for before it reached us, making an exact determination difficult. After following a steep trajectory towards the inner solar system, Oumuamua is now on the outbound leg of its orbit, travelling at 38km per second relative to the sun. This speed is too fast for any current craft to catch up and land on it, as was done with Comet 67P, but observations are now ongoing as it heads on towards the constellation Pegasus, on the next leg of its journey. Moving further afield, the High Accuracy Radial Velocity Planet Searcher, or HARPS, team at the La Silla Observatory, also in Chile, has found that a nearby red dwarf star, designated Ross 128 is orbited by a low-mass exoplanet, with an orbital period of 9.9 days. This Earth-sized world is expected to be temperate, with a surface temperature that may also be close to that of us here on Earth. At 11 light-years distance, Ross 128 is the quietest nearby star to host such a temperate exoplanet. Our closest stellar neighbour, Proxima Centauri, is also known to host a planet, leading to intense media speculation about whether it could potentially be habitable. However, many red dwarf stars, including Proxima Centauri, are active objects, producing flares that occasionally bathe their orbiting planets in intense ultraviolet and x-ray radiation, potentially stripping the atmospheres from any orbiting companions and rendering them uninhabitable. However, it seems that Ross 128 is a much quieter star, and so its planets may be the closest known, comfortable abode for possible life. With the data from HARPS, the team found that Ross 128b orbits at a distance of 0.05 AU, 20 times closer than the Earth orbits the Sun. Despite this proximity, Ross 128b receives only 1.38 times more irradiation than the Earth, thanks to its much smaller parent star. As a result, Ross 128b's equilibrium temperature is estimated to lie somewhere between minus 60 and plus 20 degrees C, again thanks to the cool and faint nature of its small red dwarf host star, which has just over half the surface temperature of our Sun. While the scientists involved in this discovery consider Ross 128 b to be a temperate planet, uncertainty remains as to whether the planet lies inside, outside, or on the cusp of the habitable zone the region where liquid water can exist on a planet's surface. Astronomers are now detecting more and more temperate, Earth-sized exoplanets, and the next stage will be to follow up these discoveries, studying their atmospheres, composition and chemistry in more detail. In particular, the detection of biosignature gases, such as molecular oxygen and ozone, in the closest exoplanet atmospheres will be a significant next step, as spectroscopy is typically confined currently to larger hot Jupiter and super-Neptune type planets. To access super-Earths and potential Earth analogs, the new generation of telescopes and spectrographs will be needed, such as the ESPRESSO spectrograph suite at the VLT, due to start operations next year, the ESO's Extremely Large Telescope, currently under construction, and the James Webb Space Telescope, currently undergoing testing and final construction in the United States. And finally, returning to Earth the Aracibo Observatory in Puerto Rico looks set to get a new lease of life, as the US National Science Foundation has announced that it will seek funding partners to keep the radio telescope in operation and aimed at the cosmos. We first reported on this story here at the Jodcast in February, when the NSF first announced that it was in need of financial partners to keep the radio telescope running. Faced with a dwindling budget for the telescope, the NSF has been seeking to transfer control of the Aracibo Observatory to a university or third-party institution. The divestment options also included demolition of the observatory, naturally drawing the ire of scientists who use the facility, built into a natural depression near the town of Arecibo, Puerto Rico. It made the news again in October, when the territory was struck by the Category 5 Hurricane Maria. Some of the telescope's dishes and surface tiles were damaged in the storm, but all staff were unharmed, and limited scientific operations have since resumed. If new partners or operators can be found, they will be able to take on the task of restoring full functionality and keeping Arecibo's eye on the sky. That was the news for the Jodcast, December 2017. And now, this.
1: Thanks for that, Jake. Now, Max Potter interviews Dr. Romain Tartes about the upcoming prospect mission.
3: Hello, this is Max Potter for the Jodcast, and I'm joined by Dr. Romain Tartes, uh, he's from the School of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Manchester and uh, he's doing some very exciting stuff to do with a mission called Prospect uh, that he's going to tell us all about. So wouldn't mind introducing yourself and telling us a bit about your work.
4: Hi Max and thanks for having me. Yes, yeah, so I am a research fellow in the School of Earth and Environmental Sciences, as you just said, and uh, I'm starting a project in September funded by the UK Space Agency to work on uh, lunar samples and to... and understand how much water is in there, how much volatiles are in there, what are their isotopic signatures, so that we can understand the sources of these volatiles. And this work is tied in with PROSPECT, PROSPECT being a mission or a package developed by the European Space Agency that should fly to the moon hopefully in the early 2020, I think it's 2022 at the moment, the launch date. And it will fly to the moon uh, on the Russian mission, uh, Luna 27, that will land at the lunar south pole. Okay, that sounds really exciting. So what is the the motivation behind the Prospect mission to the moon? So the motivation behind Prospect, main science driver, is to go to the moon, go to the south pole of the moon, where we've never been before, and um, try and see if there is water ice present there in the subsurface um, if it's there, how much is there in what form it is how deep it is trapped is it like pure ice layers is it um, ice grains mixed in in the lunar soils so it all kind of kick started about 10 years ago now when uh, in parallel, people doing some uh, sample investigation with modern lab instrumentation reanalyzed lots of samples brought back during the Apollo missions and uh, managed to measure tiny quantities of water trapped in minerals in lunar rocks. And uh, in parallel to that, spacecraft orbiting the moon also managed to, uh, to detect some deposits that we think are water ice. There was... Um, L-Cross mission, which was uh, NASA basically impacted one of their spacecraft in a crater at the lunar south pole and measured what species were ejected from that impact. And they managed to uh, measure a few weight percent of water ice, uh, among other things like uh, methane or H2. So we we really think there is water ice, uh, especially in these craters that some craters at the pool never see the, the light of the sun uh, because of the geometry. And so these craters have been in the shadow for four and a half billion years. So uh, it probably gave quite a bit of time to accumulate ice delivered by comets or asteroids. So that that's the main motivation behind that.
3: Okay, cool. That's really exciting. So um, I'm sure everyone is familiar with the idea that where we find water, we we find life. Is that part of what's exciting about this mission for you?
4: The life aspect of it is, uh, it's not very developed. I think it's really unlikely to find life on the moon. There is no atmosphere to protect anything on the surface from the harsh environment of space, uh, cosmic rays, solar rays. So the life aspect of it, at least for me, is not really important. I'm interested in um, understanding what impact has delivered Water and other volatiles to the surface of the moon. Right. So there are several possibilities. The solar wind could have probably delivered hydrogen uh, to the lunar surface. Comets, comets contain lots of water. Half of it is probably water ice. So comets hitting the surface could have delivered water. And asteroids, especially some types of asteroids, um, from which we have meteorites that we call carbonaceous chondrites. These Types of meteorite can contain up to ten percent water, so they may have delivered. And since we know that there may be some water inside the Moon, volcanic eruption on the lunar surface could have released some of this water as well. That may then have migrated at the surface of the Moon and been right. trapped into these these deep craters. Yeah. Cool. So for me, the, the 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 really key question is what? Well, is there water there? Uh, how much? And uh, ultimately, were did it come from
3: so it's more about the sort of history of what happened on the moon how
4: that water got there yeah exactly Um, and um, by by learning what happened to the moon uh, for four and a half billion years we're actually learning what happened to the earth because the moon has been tied uh, around the earth since it formed about four and a half billion years and uh, on earth that first billion year um, is largely erased because of plate tectonics because of erosion we don't have much uh, remnants of that period, so the moon is actually a giant archive to what happened to the Earth in the first couple of billion years after it formed.
3: Oh, interesting. So, do you, have there been attempts to extrapolate what you know about what things have crashed into the moon, and then you you can infer things about what's crashed into the Earth as well around that, that period? Or
4: yeah, you can. You can, in theory, uh, there are models um, that. Based on the size of the two objects and their gravitational uh, pull, that say if there is one object hitting the moon, there will be ten hitting the Earth. Mm. So yeah, there are some uh, there are some ideas uh, to try and reconstruct that, and understanding what delivered water to the moon could help us understand what delivered water to the Earth because that's that's a fundamental question. That mm. we've got clues. There are several uh, options. The options being basically comets, uh, asteroids, a mix of the two. So we don't really know what the origin of water on the Earth in the first place either.
3: How about the origin of water on on these comets? Do we know where that comes from? Can we trace it back any further or is that still somewhat of a mystery?
4: Well, there was water in the the solar system when it formed and um, comets being formed quite further out in the solar system where the environment is really cold they were able to accrete significant quantities of this water. The thing is, for uh, for terrestrial planets like the Earth, the Moon, Mercury, Venus, since they formed quite close to the Sun, we think that most of the volatiles they had initially probably evaporated quite quickly. So that's why we think that what we have now on Earth, for example, has been delivered um, after the formation of the, of the Earth.
3: So uh, you mentioned that this was... Prospect was funded by the British Space Agency. Is it, is it the British Space Agency? Uh, so
4: my, my fellowship is funded by the UK Space Agency. Right. Prospect is a European Space Agency package to which the UK Space Agency uh, participate. And, um, Prospect is, um, basically two parts. It's a drill that's been built by a company in Italy, Leonardo, and it's sample handling and mass miniaturized mass spectrometer that's being built at the open university so these two components form the prospect package and the idea behind prospect is to to fly to the moon um, at the moment it's on board the Luna 27 mission mm-hmm. the russian mission to land on the moon uh, safely and then to start drilling and extract samples at different depths drilling down to one and a half meter maybe maybe up to two meters uh, there's quite a lot of technical challenges but mm-hmm. that's the plan and then these samples um, preserve as much as we can the volatile inventory in these samples and transfer them to the gas analysis package so it comprises ovens and so that by heating up these samples we release uh, many volatiles that are in there mm-hmm. and then there are different parts in the mass spectrometer But the idea would be to analyze these gases to see what are the species there, and then analyze the isotopic composition of some species like hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, because these these isotopic compositions, so basically uh, hydrogen got two isotopes, two main isotopes, hydrogen and uh, deuterium. Mm -hmm. And that ratio is a really good traces for the origin of the volatiles. So comets tend to have very high uh, deuterium to hydrogen ratio while the sun the solar wind has got really low and asteroids are in between them so by measuring precisely that isotopic signature we can get a pretty good idea about the mm. the source of these uh, this water right. ice for example
3: so if there was if you found more deuterium or heavy water then you would
4: assume it was the solar wind that deposited it, I guess? That would be the comet. The comet comet is the heavy hand member. Ah, If it's really light, that would uh, tend to indicate that's probably the solar wind, the main contributor. So that's the the science part. There is also a more technological part. So there are a few experiments in there to try and uh, produce some resources on the Moon. So, for example... In lunar soils, there is a mineral called ilmenite, which is an iron titanium oxide. And uh, there is a, a, an experiment, which is ilmenite reduction, from which you can produce water. So the idea is to try and see if we can produce water from a lunar soil in situ. Because that eventually that, that key question about, is there water ice at the poles of the Moon? Mm. For me and for us scientists, it's really interesting scientifically, but for space agencies or for companies, there's lots of private companies that have an interest in going to the moon now, their interest would be to see if there is something economically viable. For example, if there is water, you can split hydrogen and oxygen, and these two components are the uh, main um, combustible for rockets. So eventually, in 20 years' time, we may be launching rockets from the surface of the Moon, yeah. which, with a gravity of sixth uh, the gravity of the Earth, so allow us to go much further right. in the solar system.
3: Yeah, that's really interesting. I find that happens a lot in um, research where there's these sorts of commercial, yeah, like commercial interests that coincide with really interesting science questions. It's like in, in fusion, you've got guys who are doing laser plasma fusion interactions which has got all sorts of some pretty scary <laughs> um, applications yeah. but it also can be used to model things like supernovas right yeah so.
4: yeah, yeah and so as as scientists we basically uh, uh we tag along some other interests some uh, i mean nasa didn't go to the moon in uh, the late 60s early 70s just for the science and just for collecting sample they went for political reasons And no, we've got these amazing uh, 400 kilograms of samples collected on the moon surface to work on and learn a lot about the moon. And and we always learn more because technology improves and what we measure. No, we were not able to measure uh, in the 70s, but what people will do in 30 years time, we're not able to do it now. So we're we're always learning. So these Apollo missions, they're amazing, but they went to a quite restricted uh, area on the moon basically on the near side and around equatorial region which we found out later uh, quite recently that geochemically it's a quite anomalous region on the moon Mm. Um, it's enriched in in bizarre elements like thorium or rare earth elements so what we learn from these samples may not tell us the whole story about the moon so that's why we need more missions to go to places we've never been so hopefully china is joining the Moon race as well now with a with a few plans for a more missions. So you mentioned that there are things that were impossible back
3: in the seventies and, and won't be aren't possible today, but will be in in the future. The lunar environment is quite extreme. So what difficulties are there in building things
4: that can can handle that? So the, yeah, the, you you're right, it's quite extreme. Um the the temperature variations between day and night are really really extreme uh, because you don't have atmosphere to shield you. So you're directly exposed to the space environment. And I think that's one of the main difficulty is um basically one of the main difficulties to survive lunar night when when there is no sun and the temperature goes down uh, a lot. So yeah, technically it's challenging. Um drilling in the lunar regolith um so we've we've been as part of the prospect uh team with quite a few colleagues from the uk italy germany the netherlands uh we had one of our meeting at the company building the drill in italy and so we went to see how they're testing their drill and uh, yeah there's lots of challenging with drilling into basically a material we don't really know what it's going to be because if we know what a typical lunar soil is like we know it's their mechanical properties quite well from the Apollo missions the Apollo missions did a few deep drills two meters depth so we know from an equatorial location what it looks like but if it's got 10% water ice mixed in it's going to make drilling into it much more challenging Mm. so yeah there are lots of technical challenges
3: yeah Fascinating. Wish you the
4: best of luck with that. Thank you. Sounds really interesting.
3: Is there anything else that you've got uh, going on at the minute that you'd like to mention?
4: Not really. So prospect is uh, prospect is doing well, and uh, uh, the European Space Agency is committed to uh, do that for the next few years. So hopefully, it will fly to the moon uh, very soon, and hopefully we'll have much more uh, missions, private spacecrafts, space agencies going to the moon and keep learning about the moon. Brilliant. All right, well, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for your time.
0: Thanks for that, Max. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. Um, Emma, you have something bright for us to discuss, I gather.
1: Very, very bright. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so, (laughs) so my odds and end is about iridium flares. For our listeners that don't know about iridium flares, they originate from a... A group of satellites called uh, Iridium satellites and these are 66 mobile satellite communication satellites in low earth orbit Um, they all have three reflective panels that will occasionally catch the sun and flare from between 5 and 20 seconds and it's bright yeah, well, they can be as bright as uh, magnitude minus 8, which is brighter than Venus. Uh, so if you've ever uh, seen Venus in the night or morning sky, and you, you know how bright that is, imagine that, but brighter and moving across the sky. They really are very spectacular. Um, I'm lucky to have seen quite a few myself.
0: I, I don't... I, can you see them from, like, cities and things? I've oh, never, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know if I've ever
5: noticed them. I've seen, like, tiny satellites. But, like,
0: I don't
1: think I've ever seen one from Manchester. Um, but I've seen them from other cities What before. would I
5: expect them to look like? Are we talking like just a little bright dot slowly moving across the sky?
1: Yeah, or? it's really, I mean, if you've ever seen a satellite moving mm. across the, the sky, you know that it's reasonably so. You can definitely see the movement, um, but they are there for, well, like I said, it, uh, for Iridium flares, they're, they're bright for between 5 and 20 seconds. Unfortunately, the reason why I'm bringing this up as my odd and end is that I saw recently that Iridium Communications, so the company that are behind these satellites, has confirmed to the BBC Sky at Night magazine that by the end of 2018, uh, they're going to have, uh, well, hopefully have de-orbited all of their Iridium satellites. They're currently working um, with SpaceX. They're halfway through a launch programme to replace its entire fleet with a smaller, non-flaring fleet of Iridium Next satellites. Uh, So this process involves de-orbiting all of its older hardware,
5: so we don't get to look at any cool bright things anymore.
1: Well, the deorbiting phase could take a while. Uh, the majority will be deorbiting within a year, but you might see some tumbling flyers for a period uh, of some time into 2019, and some of the satellites might take as long as 20 years to come down. So that was Matt. Dash, uh, the CEO of Iridium Communications, confirmed that to the, the Sky at Night magazine. Um, so, we,
0: do we know if we'll be able to see the satellites themselves burning up in the atmosphere? Like, will they be particularly bright during that as well? Oh,
1: good question. I'm I'm not sure about that. Um, I would imagine that you might be able to see something like Let's that. Burn things. In I, I, th- space. I think I think the idea <laughs> of, it, it might be quite unpredictable when when they when they do eventually um, come down. Um, so the thing to note is that yeah, so the, the predictability of Iridium flies because that's something I don't think I mentioned before. Obviously, mm. we know exactly where the satellites are going to be and when. Well, the communication
0: and, satellites. Well, yeah. yeah, you would you would
1: hope so, yeah. So you, in fact, there are lots of apps, websites, etc., that that you can go on and you can look up when the next Iridium fly will be in your area because obviously it, it depends whereabouts exactly you are. Um, so I know you can see them here in the UK. Actually, this is a good point, but I uh, I don't know about the rest of the world. Um, I know I,
0: very little about the rest of the world. I, I'm, uh, a, I'm an incredibly isolated human. Fair, fair I point. hear they have a
5: whole different sky in the southern hemisphere. I,
0: this is what I've heard. It's, it's, I, yeah, no. more about
5: that
1: later. Yeah. So yeah, g- given, given that they are communication satellites, and um, I, I would I would imagine that they they are reasonably worldwide that you can see these. Um, so yeah, if you, if you 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 can still see them, uh, you will be able to see them in their regular regularly scheduled flares. Well, not scheduled, but we know when they're going to be. And so it's probably worth looking out for them while you can over the next couple of years. Um, so, yeah, just just to reiterate again, they, they will possibly be some flares after 2018, but they won't necessarily be the predictable...
0: Yeah, so, Emma, why, why are satellites shiny?
1: Well, in the case of Iridium satellites, they have three polished antennas, um, 120 degrees apart and at 40-degree angles with the, with the main body of the satellite. And these antennas are the size of a door,
0: what size door? Like a big door, a normal door?
1: I I would assume a normal sized door, but that's still okay. quite
0: like the door from Titanic, big. like big enough for two people or big enough for <sighs> one. Okay, a normal
1: <laughs>
0: okay, sized Okay, that door, wasn't Josh. apparently as funny as I thought it was going to be. Um,
5: <laughs> I can only apologise. So that means that six people could ride on that satellite. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. There, there are no other physical limitations at all to riding a satellite.
5: Oh, nope, not that I know. Of.
1: <laughs> so yeah, so the, these these Iridium flares are, are probably the best well-known satellite flares. Obviously, other satellites will will occasionally get brighter as well, um, and this could be to do with any part of them reflecting the sunlight. So antennas, solar panels, uh, etc. A shiny part of the satellite, basically. Nice. Yes. So. <laughs> Message to our listeners, if you would like to see an iridium flare, which I would recommend doing, I've seen a couple in my time. I even managed to get one on camera, actually, back in... 2013 this was with a camera that only had that's
0: think, so long ago i know where has time gone i don't know that's that's an episode in and of itself isn't it
1: um. <laughs> but my, my timey wimey so th- so this this was done with a with a very basic camera in fact it was only i think the maximum exposure i could have on it was 15 seconds um so obviously that was a very much uh the, with with the flare lasting five to twenty seconds, I basically had one shot uh, to time it right to 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 capture this flare. And I did. I mean, it's not the best photo in the world, but I've, I can say I've photographed one. And so can you, listeners. So,
0: was this on your? Was this on like a proper camera, or was this on your? Because you do a lot of. Um, like, astrophotography just through a mobile phone.
1: Well, through through a phone, through a telescope, yeah. Yeah,
0: but it's not a fancy
3: setup.
1: Oh, no, this, this was kind of a, a run-of-the-mill digital camera, kind of a point, point-and-shoot kind of a thing. Um, I, I could change the exposure up to 15 seconds, and I did have a little tripod that I could put on as well. Obviously, with longer mm. exposures, you, you need to be able to um, to keep the camera steady, and uh, what you get, obviously, is a little track going across your photograph, and you can, um, you can usually see, actually, as well, the... The, the brightening and then fading of, of the satellite.
0: Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, in the photograph, because the, the line kind of gets thicker. So the
0: photograph itself is a plot of its brightness
5: over time.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's I, cre- I, that's.
5: I feel like we should like do a plug here for the fact that there are astrophotography nights that you can sign up for at Jodrell Bank Observatory. <laughs> yeah,
6: um,
0: Ant, Ant Holloway runs them. His does. his photography very is good. very good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Anyway, with the with the, the plug done, thanks for Thanks, Emma. Um, <laughs> You're we'll, very welcome. Uh, we'll move on now to uh, whatever it is Nyla's is gonna enthrall us with this week, so, this month, even. Like, um, this is kind of a
5: segue from riding on satellites, I suppose. So, basically, some scientists have, uh, have noticed that you can have these microorganisms riding on interstellar dust and raining down into our atmosphere. And could this be where life stems from? Um, so the article I'm looking at here is Are We the Aliens We Seek? No. Essentially, that um, is, that no, is no, such a clickbaity <laughs> title. It is probably why I clicked it, <laughs> um, and m- maybe we are.
0: <laughs> uh, may, maybe we are. Maybe we are the remains of a spacefaring race who have forgotten who exactly they are.
5: Not quite what I meant. <laughs> no, not quite what you meant. Shall okay, I go what, into this? <laughs> what did you mean, Niall? Tell us more. So essentially, <laughs> what what they're saying is that the interstellar dust. Could be carrying microorganisms, such as like little bacteria, and this could travel through space. and And they've actually done some uh, experiments um, with a with a rocket where they actually sent up some DNA samples on the side of a rocket through the atmosphere, which can heat up to sort of uh, a thousand degrees uh, Celsius, let's say, very hot, obviously. Uh, Experiencing you know g forces up to say eighteen, etc., etc., etc. But Would you expect DNA to survive that? I don't know, like,
0: so so it's DNA rather than like a living organism that they've sent up. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm going to go with yes because. I don't think. I
2: don't
1: don't think we're qualified to comment on biology.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I, yeah no well given last month's show no.
5: <laughs> that, that is true, actually. Yeah. yeah. Let's not go back on onto... No, let's
0: let's stay mm. away from aliens.
5: No, no. Let's let's go to aliens. Carry on. <laughs> cut that, please. Just cut that bit. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, yeah. So they sent they sent up these DNA molecules on the edge of this rocket. They've experienced all these awful, you know, heat, temperature, G forces going through the atmosphere. And when they've come back down, some of them have actually survived, which I think is really rather, rather impressive. Do they say um, whose DNA it is? They've put artificial plasmid DNA. So oh, so it's not actually someone, like, we could yeah, clone anyone like, I haven't, it. like, scratched my arm and just put it in a Petri dish or spat, spat in a Petri dish or something similar. It's, but You definitely aren't a biologist, are you? You have no idea how that works. No, not really. <laughs> not really, no. no. I, I presume I have DNA somewhere there, though. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
0: I had my um, DNA extracted at like a science fair using pineapple juice. I think like in a like pineapple juice and another blue chemical.
5: <laughs> Did you know that you can get rid of your fingerprints with pineapple juice? Okay, right. No, I I, yeah. I thought you made a mistake there. No, I no. thought no. Okay, so you're actually Can't, giving out yeah. proper like Can't, common issue for pineapple workers in actually being able to travel to the United States because you have to be able to put your fingerprint in on entry. That's kind of cool. So a paper on this has actually been published on the archive um, by Arjun Barrera, who is a scientist at the University of Edinburgh, um, basically looking at uh, planetary escape mechanisms for space dust collisions. Um, and they've also looked into whether um, the sort of telltale signs of life um, which are float- they found floating in the Earth's atmosphere could be kicked out by collisions, and these include microbial life, which is a life-essential molecule. If this were the case, then it would mean that our bits of life could be shot out on interstellar dust and fly off onto other planets, uh, potentially. Um, And similarly, that could happen on other life-bearing planets um, uh, to ours, if they exist. Josh probably knows yeah. better than me. Well, no, Josh, Josh does not know about the existence of aliens.
0: <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny anything that we may have previously cut.
5: And as such, um the these sort of life which could get embedded on, say, an asteroid or a comet or just general interstellar dust, um could fire out into the you know, into the atmosphere, out of the atmosphere, into interstellar space, and then go on and Potentially reach a planet. Um, so, like, I'm, I'm pretty,
0: I'm pretty sure that this is actually this is something that has been discussed before. Not necessarily, like, I don't think on this show we might have done it before, but um, like in terms of where rocks come from. Mm-hmm. So, if you look at a lot of meteorites that land on Earth, they are of Martian origin. Um, so, there's there's a lot of cross contamination between the two because of the way that basically you get something like the Chicxulub mm-hmm. I definitely mispronounced that. Um, but the the dinosaur killie, like the dinosaur death meteorite, um, that comes in and just throws out a load of stuff, and it just all goes straight over to Mars. Basically. That does
5: make you wonder if we do ever find life on Mars, could it actually be us? Well, this this is one of the
0: worries. Mm. This is one of the issues is that because we don't know how life itself forms, yeah. and we uh, we have a sample size of one which is the worst type of science like the universe um, cosmology yeah. again yay,
5: yay. <laughs> um, but like because
0: of that we have no concept of whether or not we we expect to find something that is significantly different from earth-based life that's fair so if we find something that is microbial and vaguely resembles how life here works did it come o- from
5: us did,
0: did it come from us yeah. well
1: there's also the other issue as well as when we go to say when we send a probe to mars to to look for these signs of life we've got to be really careful in terms of if we were to find something there has that been on mars the whole time relative to when the spacecraft has been there um the space lander or was that something that we sent with it um, and there's all sorts of kind of decontamination processes that that have to happen with these. Uh, well, I think with with most things that go into space, actually, we are m- much more conscious now of uh, being able to. Uh, we are much more conscious now of having se- sending things to other places and not contaminating mm-hmm. other other worlds. Um, However, uh,
5: uh, you can't account for space rocks.
1: No, yeah, you can't. Uh, there's
0: there's a, there's a um, really interesting WHAT IF article. On um, this, it's like the um, the guy that does XKCD, yeah. um, and the question is, what's the furthest from Earth that anything that any Earth thing has died? Um, and he basically sort of kind of explores like like sterilizing spacecraft and points out that Voyager is probably not sterile, um, and that there's stuff that survives. So that Voyager is way out now; it's like outside. I think it's past heliosphere and things. Yeah, it? I it's,
1: think it. Is one of the points of contention with with, with yeah. Voyager? Is has it left the solar system yet? How do you define the solar system? A-
0: again, there's a really good XKCD comic on this. Um, yeah. There's there's a, there's an XKCD comic Wait, for everything. We no longer
5: have contact with Voyager anymore, do we? Is that right? Well, we do, no, we do. do. We yeah. do still have contact. We do. It's with
0: just we? a very long way away. Okay. You can't really control it. Yeah. Like, so you like, just
5: have to let it float yeah. out on its own. And yeah, okay. which is
0: um, what they what these things do. Yeah. Um, yeah, they have um, like they kind of a lot of them operate on their own, so that they have um, not quite GPS, but they use star maps. Right. Um, so they calculate where exactly they are and have pre-programmed stuff based mm-hmm. on exactly where things uh, stars are. like so, go-
1: going on a bit of a tangent here, but yeah. I found this really interesting. Um, so that actually became an issue for the recent Rosetta mission. Mm. You know, the the probe that visited uh, comets. Speaks- <coughs> Sorry. The probe that visited Comet 67P, I will not give its other name because, again, pronunciation. Um, but actually, at one point when, when it was going into kind of a, a closer approach to the comet, it got really confused because it couldn't tell where it was. And that was because dust from the comet was, that, was obscuring its camera that it used for looking at the stars and finding its position. Mm. Uh, because it, it it saw the little particles of dust and thought that they were stars.
5: Which is a bit concerning when you're trying to pinpoint the lander thing on the comet itself, right? <laughs> anyway,
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that's it's been quite anyway. off topic. Yeah, no,
5: this, this, has gone, this has gone very off topic. <laughs> oh, it's, but
1: fine. I, it's It
5: does it's, it's, get, t- take us back to the point now that there could be life being carried from us to other places. There. Yeah. And um, arguably life being carried from other planets elsewhere also to other places. So yeah. it's, uh, it's quite an exciting prospect. And yeah. Could we be the aliens we seek? I'm still not convinced it's about that. It's a bit of a, a semantic title. question at this I, point. But... I'm really, I'm really not convinced by that title <laughs> at all. Um, and
0: I'm going to talk about not well, yeah. I'm going to talk about planets again, uh, but this time I'm going to talk about whether or not the Earth is flat. Uh, there is a guy in California um, who has decided that he's going to try and launch himself in a homemade rocket in order to try and prove that the Earth is flat. And wow! I like. I, I'm I'm not here to. I'm not here to poke fun at him. I think it's silly. Um, I, I'm not, but like, as in, that's not the point of this segment. Um, the point of this is just I, I, w- I wanted to kind of vaguely discuss, like, why the Earth is round because there's there's this strange resurgence of um, flat Earth theorists. We've known we've known categorically, scientifically, that the Earth has been flat since about 4000 BC. Like we built Stonehenge, mm. that does not work unless the Earth is round. Stonehenge works, so I. It, it's when really... when you
1: say Stonehenge works, can you just clarify what so yeah what so it does? so
0: Stonehenge is basically a clock. Um, there, it's 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 a measure of, um, well, it's it's thought to be a sol- like a solstice measure. During the solstices, the sun lines up exactly between the arches that are formed by Stonehenge, um, and. This basically means that you can predict exactly to the day based using the stones when the solstices are supposed to be, and it was thought to be used for various farming, like we should plant now, and here's a like various cultures have been built around it.
5: It's impressive how clever we were back then. Yeah,
0: it's.
1: Um... I mean, humans have always been clever, right? Mm. It's just that nowadays we have more of the technology so that we can apply the the human intelligence in in different ways. I mean, if you look back into history, you know, of all the you know, the, the pyramids and uh, other wonders of ancient civilization, like people knew what they were doing, mm. and uh, it just took them a little bit longer yeah, to just, to do things. It's, it's because... almost
5: even more impressive that they just mm. they just had some rocks, but they still managed to yeah, do something well, so amazing. Because well, the, ro- <laughs> the rocks themselves are like so
0: Stonehenge is in what Salisbury, Sol- mm. Salisbury, Salisbury. That's how yeah. you say it. Um, but like the rocks themselves are from Wales, yeah. Um, so they had to
5: carry these massive things, yeah, there, yeah. Like and they're just kind of there's the druidic it. thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: like they've managed to drag these rocks that each one of them weighs more than about three cars. Go the Celts, and they're not cars, so you can't drive them. Um, it's yeah. Um, sorry, actually, there, there is there is someone someone's also built a Stonehenge replica out of cars. I'm pretty sure. I think they were Ford. Fiestas. Um, anyway, that's completely. That's a
5: very big segue. That's, that's <laughs> a very very big tangent.
0: Um, anyway, no, go, going back, like, um, like I just kind of. So he's he's decided that he's going to try and fire himself in basically a kettle. Um, so it's this big steam-powered rocket that he wanted to launch himself. Oh, 18... Thanks
5: for clarifying it was steam. Yeah. Um, so it's it's, it's like a, it's a steam-powered rocket
0: that he wants to launch himself eighteen hundred feet. Into the air, which is nowhere like
5: you. You can get higher on a hill. Is that um, far enough up to see the circumference of the earth? Well, right? no. If you go and stand on a hill, that's so no, like, no. So, so he's going to get that high, and that's in his head is going to justify that the the earth is flat because you won't be able to see the. Yep. Great. Yeah, that's no, that's um, good. So he's going to go eighteen
0: hundred feet up and a mile along, um, in the Mojave Desert. Um, but well, he tried to do this okay. last weekend, um, like end of November, and the uh, mini, uh, the the mini bus, the the motorhome that he repurposed into a mobile launcher uh, broke down. Like I, there, there is a guy wandering around California with basically a missile launcher. He's
5: moved. He sorry, he's in a, <laughs> a motorhome. Yeah, he's, and he's, he's he converted bit, he, it into a rocket yeah, launcher. Yeah, he's built a ground-to-air missile. <laughs> A man How have they a let him do this? I don't <laughs> know. That's not good on the part of America. <laughs> anyway, um, no. En- anyway,
0: um, the 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 um, what I, I I just kind of wanted to discuss a couple of things about like why we can tell that the Earth is round.
4: Sure.
0: Um, so like the foot like so hopefully well a lot of these are astronomical based um, which is great for um, the podcast. Uh, so we have like the moon for instance. We know that the moon is round. Um, like we can see this the only way that the sort of shapes of it work is if it's round you can you see a sort of rounded um
1: Tem- crescent, termination, crescent shape. Yeah, termination, termination. that's
0: the word yeah. i'm looking for but e- but even duringlip ecl- so when during a lunar eclipse where the the earth goes between the sun and the moon the, yeah between the sun and the moon um you see the earth's shadow and that's rounded um and it's spherical and the geometry only works if it's spherical. But um, you can also, like most, mostly, um, if you get a stick and put it in the ground. Um, and So Niall nah- like, and I were chatting about this before <laughs> and um, trying to work out how far away you'd have to go. It's, what, a couple of hundred miles, I it's think? Something like yeah, that. Like, but yeah, it's,
5: but it's doable within a country. Yeah. You, you'll measure a different angle yeah. based on where you are. On yeah, the... so
0: you, you put a stick in the ground and you get a shadow and you can measure the angle between the top of the stick and the shadow at a certain time. And it will be different depending on where you are.
5: Which I believe was done by an ancient Greek philosopher.
0: Yeah, is Ar- Aristophanes. Mm. Um, in well, he lived between the years of 276 and 194 BC.
1: So we've known about this for a while. Then. Yeah, we've
0: we, we've known about this for a very long time, and that that like genuinely, and it's there's been
5: proven
1: a long is, time I ago. Think, is The
5: issue. Like, I think.
1: <laughs> I think. I think the issue. Well, it's it's not a case of if the evidence is there for yeah for, for you know. around uh, a spherical earth or not and i think that the whole flat earth phenomenon has only really emerged in recent years and i feel like it's tied to a greater i know a greater phenomenon
0: yeah well so we we were discussing this actually in um the previous episode and like why people are saying no to Experts, mm, like, the distrust of yeah, scientists. It's like the, di- yeah, like the distrust of scientists, and I, under, I I, sort of understand it on like new phenom- new phenomena, mm. perhaps, and like why people would maybe sort of go, like I, th- there's part of me that understands why people don't like the Big Bang theory. Uh, well, I, I hate the program, but like the, <laughs> <laughs> like the, like why people don't like the actual theory, but when it's something as sort of fundamental and so widely accepted and And understood
5: provable with a stick yeah
1: I think think part of the issue is is potentially a a miscommunication of the scientific method because Mm. as scientists we want to you know we. I mean there's variations depending on exactly what field you're in as opposed to what the specific method of going about something is but on the whole we have theories and let's note as well that the, the the scientific definition of theory is something that we use to describe something. It's not a hunch. It's not a, oh, I, I think this, 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 I have a theory about the way that this works in, in terms of. Uh... The
0: word we use for that is hypothesis.
1: Well, yeah. Like if, yeah. It, if
0: it's unproven, it's a hypothesis. Exactly.
1: So yeah. Um, but I think the idea behind kind of questioning. Well, not necessarily questioning results, but make, testing them in a rigorous format. So that's why we have peer-reviewed scientific journals, right? You you can't just publish a paper and go, "I found this thing," and everyone go, "Yep, that's that's entirely fine. We completely believe you." You know, a, a study needs to be reproducible, and you need to have you need to be able to have other people replicate um, and verify your results. And so there there is a kind of concept of you need to be able to. Uh, justify things and um, and part of that is 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 questioning things you know if if a new paper comes out with a certain scientific result that's a bit controversial, the first thing people do is, oh, what potentially has gone wrong with this? So for example a few years ago there was neutrinos going faster than speed of light, it turns out that a cable wasn't screwed in properly which extended its length or something like that. Or
5: alternatively there's the bicep thing where Mm. they thought they'd found B-modes and it turned out to be interstellar dust, so Uh, polarised dust I should say.
1: Yeah, so so, so basically you you should always question a scientific finding uh, in that you you want to make rigorous Make sure that it is what it seems, but I think that that aspect of the scientific method sometimes, yeah, has been uh,
0: distrusted.
1: Well, miscommunicated. I, I miscommunicated, yeah. yeah, because you know the uh, someone who isn't scientifically trained might see it and go like, "Oh, well, the scientists don't even trust each other." You know, we we've got to question science. We've got to question everything we know. Yeah. and then that kind of leads down a rabbit hole of, you know, people.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's, it's the it's the question of where does questioning everything end? Mm, it's, yeah, you, you, yeah. you can question it and then go, oh, okay, right. Well, I've questioned this. Mm. I've I've found that my results agree with this. I'm not like that. That's and so have ever. So is everyone else. Mm. There are like if ninety nine percent of people are in agreement mm. on a scientific finding, unless there's something major that has gone wrong
1: then it's like the same question of kind of human uh, human initiated climate change right so pretty much all of the world scientists agree that the humans are having a negative impact on the earth's climate you know where global warming is happening we we are the earth's average temperature is increasing at an absolutely alarming rate when you compare it to you know the, the past millennia of uh yep. of hockey public. stick and yet you still have people that just say, nope, that's not happening.
0: No. And it's, it's
1: quite, actually, from from a, a, a science communication perspective, it's really hard because you can't tell people more facts. You can't say, well, this study showed this, this study showed that, because if people uh, are kind of fundamentally questioning facts, you know, well, I believe this, I believe that, and and people value, if people are valuing opinions more than they are hard scientific facts, then...
5: Yeah, it's... um. It's a, it's, I think it's a lack of understanding in the scientific process, Yeah, really.
0: I'm just going to finally give one last um, proof of the, the roundness of the Earth, uh, which is the fact that we have different north and southern skies. Um, and on that note, we're going to go now to Ian Morrison with uh, this month's North Night Sky.
6: The night sky for December 2017. Well, we have quite a few hours to observe the heavens assuming it's clear and it doesn't seem to be clear all that much in northern england i have to say for the last few weeks but let's hope things get better well as darkness falls over in the west is setting the square of pegasus the upturned winged horse starting at alpharats which is the top left hand star of the square of pegasus there's a way to find the andromeda galaxy And also, in fact, around December the 18th, when there's around New Moon, you might have a chance of picking up M33 as well, which is not that far away. And there's a second way of finding it coming down from the constellation Cassia Pier. The the right-hand V of the W, in fact, is an arrow pointing down to where M31 is. And if you go to the Night Sky page, just put in Night Sky Jodrell into a search engine, then there is, in fact, a little chart Etc. To show you what to do. So coming around towards the south and then the southeast, we have that rather lovely region high up, the region between Cassiopeia and Perseus, and between the two, there's that lovely Perseus double cluster, and that looks very nice in a small telescope. And even you can pick it up with binoculars. Coming round further still, you have a nice yellow star. It's Capella. It's Ariga, Alpha Ariga. And there's a sort of a rectangular shaped constellation that basically comes down towards the constellation of Taurus the bull. And that's a lovely constellation with two beautiful things in it. First of all, uh, up to the right, we have the Pleiades cluster. And then at its heart, we have the Hyades cluster. In the Hyades cluster is or appears to be a bright star, which is called Aldebaran. It's actually about halfway between us and the clusters are not part of it. And one of the highlights this month, as we shall see, is when the moon occults it um, around the end of December. Below Taurus is of course that wonderful constellation of Orion. The three stars of Orion's belt point up to the Hyades cluster or down to the left towards Sirius. which will be rising in the Southeast Canis Major, Alpha Canis Majoris, um, which is the brightest star we have in our northern heavens. Up a little bit to the left of Orion, there's a single bright star called Procyon, which is the brightest star in Canis Minor. And moving towards the zenith from Procyon, we have the twin stars Castor and Pollux, the heads of the heavenly twins. So that's really quite a nice part of the sky to observe, and as night goes on, Leo will gradually rise above the Eastern horizon. What about the planets? Well, let's start with Jupiter. Jupiter is now a pre-dawn object, rising some two hours before the sun at the beginning of the month. It has a 31 arc second disc and shines at magnitude minus 1.7. As the month progresses, it's apparent diameter increases to 33 arc seconds and it brightens to magnitude minus 1.8. Sadly, the low elevation will hinder our view, but the equatorial bands and up to four of the Galilean moons should be visible as they weave their way around it. Well, Saturn, in fact, will not be visible this month as it leaves the evening sky on its way to superior conjunction. That's when it passes behind the sun on December the 21st. It will then reappear in the pre-dawn sky next year. Now, Mercury was just visible in the evening sky at the end of November, will not be seen for three weeks as it passes between the Earth and the sun on December the 13th, and that's inferior conjunction. From the 20th or so, it brightens rapidly in the pre-dawn sky to reach a magnitude of minus 0.3 by month's end, when it will be some 23 degrees away from the sun. Now, as at this time of the year, the ecliptic, at dawn makes quite a steep angle to the horizon, it will then have a reasonable elevation. So making the end of the month an excellent time to observe Mercury. It will then have a magnitude of about minus 0.3 and a disc seven arc seconds across. At the start of December, Mars lies in Virgo, just three degrees up to the left of Spica, Alpha Virginis. It's now a morning object At the start of its new apparition and rises four hours or so earlier than the sun during the month mars has a magnitude increasing from 1.7 to 1.5 and an angular size of just 4.2 in fact increasing to 4.8 arc seconds across so no details will be seen on its salmon pink surface mars crosses from virgo into libra on the 21st moving eastwards to closely approach Jupiter on New Year's Eve, before a very close conjunction with it on the 7th of January. Venus was seen in a close conjunction with Jupiter on the 13th of November. It's now moving back towards the sun and rises just 45 minutes before the sun at the start of the month. It'll be lost in the sun's glare around the 12th of the month, on its way to superior conjunction, that's on the far side of the sun, on January the 9th. In its final week of visibility, it will have a magnitude of about minus 3.9 and a disc 9.9 arc seconds across. What about the highlights? Well, I've mentioned M31 and M33, best seen around the 18th of December around New Moon. And as I said, there's a chart on the night sky page to tell you how to find it. On December the 2nd before dawn, if it's clear, there's probably the last chance for a while of spotting Venus as it sinks down towards the sun, with first Jupiter and then Mars higher above in the southeastern sky. To actually spot Venus, a very low horizon towards the southeast will be needed and perhaps binoculars, but please do not use them after the sun has risen. On the 14th of the month before dawn, there's a nice grouping of Mars, Jupiter and a thin crescent moon. A very thin waning crescent moon will be seen with Mars to its upper right and Jupiter below. Well, we have two meteor showers this month. The first one is on the nights of December the 14th and 15th. And if it's clear, we'll have a chance of observing the peak of the Geminid meteor shower. Pleasingly, this is a great year to observe them, as the thin, waning crescent moon will not affect our view. The Geminids can often produce near-fireballs, so the shower is well worth observing if it's clear. An observing location well away from towns or cities will pay dividends. The radiant which is where the meteors come from is close to the bright star castor in the constellation of germany and i give a chart for that in the night sky page as well of course if it's clear it'll be cold so do wrap up well wear a woolly hat and have some hot drinks with you again the very late evenings of december the 22nd 23rd are when the ursid meteor shall be at its peak though the rate of perhaps 14 to 15 meteors per hour towards the zenith, is not that great. Again, pleasingly, the moon soon after new will not affect our view during much of the night. The radiant lies close to the star Kokab in Ursa Minor, hence their name, so look northwards at high elevation. Occasionally, there can be a far higher rate, so it's still worth worth having a look, should it be clear. Well, around 1 a.m. on the morning of December the 30th, 31st, the moon will occult Aldebaran. Quite exactly when will depend upon where you live in the UK. So it's just after 1 a.m. when the near full moon will occult the red giant star Aldebaran that lies between us and the Hyades cluster. It will then disappear behind the dark limb. And that's actually quite nice. The star just blinks out of view it will reappear just before 2 a.m. And again, those times, as a result of parallax, the moon's not far away, will depend on where you are in the UK. So if you start looking just after 1 a.m., you'll have no problems. You're bound to see it. On December the 31st, before dawn, if clear, you should be able to spot Jupiter and Mars close together in the pre-dawn sky with elusive mercury above the horizon down to their lower left. A low horizon towards the southeast will be needed to pick up mercury and perhaps binoculars. But again, can I say, don't use them after the sun has risen. I usually mention an object on the moon to observe, and just to say that December the 9th and the 26th are good times to observe the Alpine Valley. A rift across the Apennine Mountains. It's about 74 miles long, about 10 miles wide. A little rill runs along the centre, which is very hard to spot. So, again, there's some details of that on the night sky page. So, I do hope you do have some clear nights this month and some good chances to observe the heavens. Happy Christmas.
5: Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Antipodean listeners, here's Claire Bretherton with the night sky where you are.
7: Cura and welcome to the December Jodcast from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. We're really noticing our days getting warmer now and our evenings getting brighter as we head towards the Southern Hemisphere summer solstice on the 22nd of December. The eastern evening sky is dominated by our summer constellations of Taurus and Orion with his two dogs Canis Major and Canis Minor. The summer Milky Way stretches through these constellations and along our southern horizon. Whilst not as bright as our winter Milky Way, we can still pick out the mottled glow of bright and dark regions when observed from a dark location. The bright regions are the combined light of the many distant stars that form our galaxy, whilst the dark patches are clouds of interstellar gas and dust that block the light from more distant stars. Throughout this region, there are many star clusters and nebulae that can be observed with binoculars and small telescopes, and some that can even be seen with the naked eye. We'll start our tour of the southern skies in Orion, sitting high in the east after dark, and easy to find by the three bright stars that form his belt. Here in Aotearoa, we call these Totoru, meaning line of three. As he lies along the celestial equator, Orion can be seen at least partially throughout the world. Above Orion's belt is a line of faint stars which form Orion's sword, but in New Zealand we see him upside down, so instead his belt and sword become a pot or saucepan. In Greek mythology, Orion is a hunter, and the arch-enemy of Scorpius, our winter constellation. The two continually chase each other around the sky. Just as one rises in the east, the other sets below the western horizon. At the top left of the constellation is the bright blue-white supergiant Rigel, or Puanga. Whilst Rigel has been given the beta designation, it is in fact normally the brightest star in the constellation and the seventh brightest in the night sky. Its colour tells us that it is extremely hot, with over twice the temperature and many tens of thousands of times the luminosity of the Sun. With an estimated age of just 8 million years, compared to 4.5 billion years for the Sun, Rigel is a young star that has already used up all the hydrogen in its core and has swollen out to between 79 and 115 times the sun's radius. Hot, massive blue stars like Rigel don't live very long. They live fast and die young, using their fuel quickly before meeting a violent death. Over the next few million years, Rigel will expand further and cool to become a red supergiant before ending its life in a massive explosion called a supernova. At the bottom right of Orion is Betelgeuse, a star that has already reached the red supergiant phase, bloating out and cooling down to give it its wonderful red hue. Betelgeuse is designated Alpha Orionis, but is currently the second brightest star in the constellation. Estimates of its mass range from around 8 to 20 times that of the Sun, and if it were placed at the centre of the solar system, its surface would reach out almost as far as the orbit of Jupiter. One day, Betelgeuse is gonna end its life in a supernova. Of course, soon to astronomers could be a million years, but if it does go bang within our lifetimes, it's sure to be a spectacular sight, perhaps becoming so bright you could see it in the daytime. At a distance of over 600 light years, it is possible this explosion has already happened and we're just waiting for the light to reach us. But as well as stars at the end of their lives, Orion also contains stars whose lives are just beginning. If you look carefully, you may see the middle star of Orion's sword has a fuzzy appearance. This is the Great Nebula in Orion, or M42. The Orion Nebula is a stellar nursery, a huge cloud of gas and dust, in which new stars are being born. At around 1,344 light-years away, M42 is the closest massive star formation region to the Earth, with around 700 stars in various stages of the star formation process. In the heart of the Orion Nebula is a small group of bright stars known as the Trapezium Cluster. The ultraviolet radiation from these stars is lighting up the surrounding gas. Whilst easily spotted with the naked eye, through binoculars or a small telescope, the nebula is a wonderful sight. Take your time and you should be able to clearly see some of the nebulosity of M42 and the bright star cluster that lights it up. Another nebula in Orion that is well worth a look is the Reflection Nebula M78, easily found as a hazy patch in a small telescope. With a larger telescope, the famous Horsehead Nebula, silhouetted against the emission nebula IC434, is a lovely sight just to the south of the star Alnitak, the easternmost star in Orion's belt. Its proximity to bright Alnitak makes viewing the Horsehead Nebula more challenging, but long exposure photographs will reveal much more detail. Following Orion's belt to the left, we come to an upturned V-shape of stars, marking the head of Taurus, the bull. At the bottom of this V is the bright orange star Aldebaran, at around 65 light-years away, representing the eye of the bull. The other stars in the V are part of the more distant Hyades cluster. At 153 light-years away, the Hyades is the closest and one of the best-studied open clusters to Earth it is estimated to be around 625 million years old. Over time, the cluster will continue to spread out and disperse into space, with some of the largest and brightest members already coming towards the ends of their lives. Near to the fainter of the two horns of Taurus, and just about visible in binoculars under excellent conditions, is the Crab Nebula. First discovered by English astronomer John Beavis in 1731, The Crab Nebula is a supernova remnant now believed to be associated with supernova SN1054, observed and recorded by Chinese astronomers in 1054 AD. Continuing further around the sky, you come to another famous open cluster, the Pleiades, or M45, at a distance of 444 light-years away. This group of stars is even younger than the Hyades and is dominated by a number of hot, massive blue stars only around 100 million years old. The Pleiades has many different names in many different cultures, but here in New Zealand is known as Matariki, meaning little eyes or eyes of God. The rising of this group of stars for the first time before the sun around June each year marks the coming of the Maori New Year. Following Orion's belt to the right, you come to Sirius or Takarua, the brightest star in our nighttime sky, and in the constellation of Canis Major, Orion's large hunting dog. Canis Minor, the small dog, is a little below, close to the eastern horizon. It contains just two bright stars and looks like a single line when traced on the sky. Here at Space Place, we like to call it the Hot Dog Constellation, as that's the only dog we know of with no head, no legs, and no tail. The brighter of the two stars, Procyon, is one of the Sun's nearest stellar neighbours at just 11.46 light-years away. Whilst it appears as a single star, the eighth brightest in the night sky, it's actually a binary star system, consisting of a white main-sequence star and a faint white dwarf companion. From Orion and his hunting dogs, you can follow the band of the Milky Way around the sky, through the false and diamond crosses, to Crux, the southern cross, low in the south. Scanning a pair of binoculars along the Milky Way should pick out glowing gas clouds and numerous star clusters, whilst revealing much more detail than the eye can see. Both Mercury and Saturn quickly disappear from our dusk skies this month as they move closer to the Sun, leaving our evenings bereft of bright planets. Mars is the first to rise around 3.30am at the start of the month, with Jupiter joining it around 40 minutes later. By the end of December, Mercury will also reappear in the morning, rising rapidly up the dawn sky to sit just below orange Antares. We also have a number of meteor showers happening this month. The Phoenixids reach their peak on 6th of December and are thought to be associated with the comet D1819W1 Blampane. With the radiant in the constellation of Phoenix not far from Achenar, this shower is well placed for southern hemisphere observers throughout the hours of darkness. The Phoenicians were first discovered during an outburst in 1956, where approximately 100 meteors an hour were seen from locations across the southern hemisphere. However, activity is very uncertain, and rates since have been much, much lower than this. The minor Papid Velids meteor shower also reaches its peak at around the same time, with a zenithal hourly rate of around 10. However, the radiant will only rise around 14 degrees above our horizon, so we may only get around 3 an hour. Just a few days later, peaking on the 15th of the month, are the Geminids. The Geminids are one of the best meteor showers of the year, but we're not well placed for viewing in New Zealand, with the radiant in the constellation of Gemini and well north of the equator. The constellation is at its highest around 3am, but still appears low in our northern sky. Due to this low height, we only see around half of the meteors visible to those in the northern hemisphere. Wishing you clear skies and a Merry Christmas from the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Claire.
0: Um, And now we're going to move on to the feedback. Um, We've uh, not had that much from you uh, this month, um, so please send some stuff in. But uh, we have got a couple of things uh, just from Facebook.
1: Yeah, so we've got a a message from James Walters who said, Thank you to the Jodcasters who have bowed out. Really enjoyed your shows. Welcome to the new Jodcasters. Looking forward to lots... More great shows, thanks for that, James. Um, I'm also quite in awe of all the Jodcasters that, that have bowed out that have kind of come to their end, uh, the end of their time here at JBCA. Yeah, and, uh, um,
0: as, as these new Jodcasters that are being welcomed, thanks, James. But, yeah. um, like, uh, like Charlie and Ben and co did a really, really good job on the they really before.
5: did. And I hope we can just carry on, yeah, where they left off, I guess. Yeah, um. Uh, we've also had something from Twitter. Uh, it's uh, it's not feedback, but we've had a lot more questions to come in for the Ask an Astronomer section, so uh, we'll get round to them as soon as we can.
0: Yep, so uh, hopefully listen out to the December Extra, uh, where there I think there might be a, an Ask an Astronomer section. Um, there should be. There should be. Um, but yeah, if you fancy getting in touch with us, uh, you can do so via the website at uh, www.jodcast.net.
1: Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Jodcast
5: Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Jodcast YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast
1: Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast
5: And don't forget that you can send us post, and the address for that is on the website. That's um, all we've got time for this episode uh, so we'd like to thank Max Potter for
0: the interview. Uh, the editors were Naomi Asambre-Frimprong, Joseph Quofie, Jake Morgan and Tom Scragg, and the producer was Jake Morgan. Until next time,
6: Jod on! on.